This was 2000, so 20 years ago. Um, I'm coming back from a uh, deployment to the Middle East. And pre-9-11, deployments were, they were different. One, you weren't really worried about people shooting at you. They could, it was always a possibility, but uh, we weren't like quite on the war path yet. Um, and this was when I was in uh, fifth special forces group. So pre 9-11, it was, uh, how do I explain it? We were like ready to fuck shit up and we were hoping we could get to fuck shit up. But other than a few places, there wasn't really a good opportunity to fuck shit up. So deployments were mostly, uh, there were really like U.S. commitments from the first Gulf War. So first Gulf War, like 1990. Um, you know, that was before my time. So, but we still had commitments to, you know, our Middle Eastern allies. Um, we were all trying to keep Saddam contained. Uh, that was mostly it. Just containing Saddam, enforcing the oil embargoes, enforcing the no-fly zones. Um, and it seemed, it took a couple deployments for me to kind of figure it out, but it seemed like... You know, I thought I was going to be a fucking badass commando. Mostly I was like PR, like like public relations. A lot of the deployments I went on, if they weren't just... There was the big one was Kuwait, which was always once a year at least. was like a three to six month stint in Kuwait. And you're just... It's fucking kind of like prison. It was so lame. A big reason why I eventually got out... Uh, was I just didn't want to go back to Kuwait again. It was such a fucking, such a drag. Um, and then other deployments are cool because you could do more stuff, but it was all like training. And a lot of it was kind of babysitting, like babysitting our Middle Eastern uh, allies. <laughs> so a lot of training uh you know training kuwaitis how to you know assault or breach or take down a hijacked airplane <laughs> which sounds cool and it was pretty cool but mostly it's a shit show <laughs> these fucking guys it's it's like the yankees playing a little league team <laughs> it's it's like what are we doing here it's all PR. It was like our, you know, our State Department made a deal, you know, with the foreign ministry of whatever other country. And it seemed like, you know, in order for trade concessions or whatever they were doing, a lot of it, they might tack on, hey, we're going to send some of our uh, some of our special forces guys to come and train your guys how to be snipers or whatever. <laughs> so that was... There was a lot of deployments like that, but it, in practice, it was 
it was fucking bad news bears. It was like the Yankees playing an exhibition game with the bad news bears. <laughs> it was kind of like you're wasting my time. Like I spent a lot of time and effort, you know, wanting to be a super badass. And this, this is the job is <laughs> fucking is trying not to get these Jordanian Rangers to trying to get them to not shoot each other accidentally. <laughs> that was the job. <laughs> um, a little, little disheartening, I guess. Uh, also a lot of deployments, they'd also tack on, you know, a little like salesmanship for the military industrial complex. Like we'd go over with our cool snazzy toys that, you know, we got from Raytheon or whoever, and then we'd hold little classes, you know, in Ethiopia for their military. And I guess the hope was like, maybe they, their military would buy the cool toys. Like, like I don't know if it actually panned out, but uh, I don't think Ethiopia bought a lot of our cool toys. Maybe they did, but I think they had other issues, <laughs> like feeding everybody. Um, other issues like getting in a border clash with Eritrea. They don't need, you know, they don't need our cool toys to fight Eritrea. They're basically throwing rocks at each other. Um, but. One of the main uh, mainstays of these deployments was the return trip. Uh, and on this particular, this was a Jordan trip to Jordan, like a, I think we did five or six weeks. Um, did the tour of Jordan, which doesn't take that long. It's kind of a small country. Um, basically, I don't, I don't know. I really don't know what the hell we were doing. <laughs> PR, a little PR a little uh, salesmanship for the military industrial complex. That's about it, you know, but these were the little exercises that people would, you know, your commanders would build their careers on since, you know, there were no real uh, opportunities to shoot motherfuckers. And in relative peacetime, there's always little things going on here and there, even in peacetime, but most of what's going on is bullshit. And this was the bullshit people built their careers on pre-Afghanistan, pre-second Gulf War. Um, so the best part of these was on the way back. Because um, uh, especially if you fly like a military plane, military planes that'll take you to and from deployments always mysteriously break down for a couple days when you stop somewhere cool, you know, like you'll stop to refuel. And if you stop somewhere like Spain, Amsterdam, Italy, Germany, the plane will kind of like break and then you'll be stuck in this pit stop for at least a day, usually two or three days. The Air Force pilots, you know, they decide the plane needs a part replaced and then all of us on the plane get to hang out somewhere cool. Um, and I'm going to leave names out of this one uh, to protect the guilty. Also, uh, I'm not going to give a specific time frame. You know, you don't need to know what time of year it is. 
Uh, so no ex-wives. I'm sure all these guys that I was with are divorced by now. <laughs> Most of them were already on their second or third marriage. I'm sure whatever marriage they were on at the time, I'm sure that failed as well. Um, but, you know, just so no ex-wives can establish a forensic accounting of any infidelity. I don't want to get anybody in trouble. I was single. I did not break any laws in the country I was in. All I can say is this event took place while Germany still used the Deutschmark as currency. Actually, I think I already told you the year. That's fine. The year is fine. It could be any time of the year. There are always multiple trips <laughs> throughout the year. But uh, this is 2000, so it's still the Deutschmark pre-Euro. Um, and then we all went to a brothel. Now, we were coming back from Jordan, and we had tried to go to a brothel in Jordan, uh, which was supposedly like a, a Russian joint. Because um, prostitution is legal in Jordan, or it was. Prostitution is legal in uh, a bunch of countries in the Middle East. I don't think it's technically, I don't think it was legal in Saudi or Kuwait. Um, but of course, all the, all the sort of vice laws, like no drinking, no gambling, whatever, in, uh, in Saudi and Kuwait, they're really only for the poor people. They don't apply much to Saudis themselves. Because like, I know, I never went to any, but I knew Saudi and Kuwait had like speakeasies, they had bars, they had like dance clubs, but you kind of had to be, I don't know, a, a f only a few steps removed from like the royal family, I think, or yeah, but most of their laws are for poor people. Um, all the beheadings in Saudi, like rich people aren't getting beheaded, unless you're directly related to that uh, crown prince guy who likes to murder people. If you're a threat to him, that's it's real medieval. It's like the laws don't apply to you unless they decide. I guess some of that happens in America too, but it's, it's way more nepotism in those places. So uh, laws only apply to you if you don't have money or influence. But if you have too much money or too much influence, then the laws can apply to you if they decide to use them to get you out of the way. Kind of like China. They do that with China, too. They'll decide to throw a billionaire in, in jail if he says shit about the party. Um, so we tried to go to a brothel in Jordan. Uh, but And prostitution is legal except on like specific Islamic holy days. Uh, and the day we tried to go to this Russian brothel, um, it was closed because it was, I don't know, it's Muhammad's birthday or something. Uh, which is probably for the best since looking back now, I suppose I was aware of, you know, human trafficking or sex trafficking as a concept, but it didn't occur to me that that was probably what this place was. Um, and going to the brothels, by the way, it was always planned and coordinated by the married guys. Those of us who were single, we didn't really have much interest in going other than alleviating boredom. Like, you're just tired of looking at the same 
things and the same people every day. So you're like, sure, let's let's get out of here and go to a brothel. Uh, and I'd never really slept with a prostitute. I'd been to a couple brothels, but I'd never partaken because I was never interested. It's you know, it doesn't didn't appeal to me. The concept of going to the brothel was like, yeah, that sounds dirty and dangerous and fun, but I don't actually want to touch one of the women. Um, cause I grew up in the age of HIV, but I sure as hell wanted to see the inside of a Russian whorehouse. Uh, I'm sure, I'm sure in my head it was way cooler and fancier than in real life. Cause in my head we were, we were going to like an art deco burlesque parlor in a rundown seen better days like a grand budapest hotel if you google sleep no more nyc that's what i was imagining with lots of sexy enterprising russian and ukrainian women with master's degrees in engineering and smoking cigarettes doing shots of vodka that's what I was hoping to see. <laughs> it was probably nothing like that. It was probably more like that that first place where Liam Neeson looked for his daughter, but then he finds out she'd been moved to the dumb white girl auction on Bill Gates's yacht. Uh, it's probably like that first place, you know, kind of like shitty. <laughs> shitty and gross. So it was probably for the best that this particular joint was closed for the holiday for Muhammad's birthday or whatever day it was. I don't remember which, I mean, it wasn't Ramadan, so I don't know why it was closed. Um, here's something I always wondered. They say prostitution is the oldest profession and it has a nice ring to it, but it can't be true. Can't be true. I know the phrase comes from a Kipling story called On the City Wall um, about an, uh, this Indian prostitute named Leilun. Uh, the story is written like 1889. Uh, and Leilun, here's a little bit from that, that where that phrase comes from. So, Leilun is a member of the most ancient profession in the world. Lilith was her very great grandmama. You know, Lilith who... Um, what did Lilith do? Lilith, uh, I think she told Adam to fuck off. Like before Eve, there was Lilith. And Adam, you know, tried to institute the patriarchy. And Lilith wasn't having it. So she told him to fuck off and she left. And then Adam was lonely. So God made Eve to like cherish and obey Adam. But Lilith gave him the finger uh also lilith may have been a lesbian i'm not quite <laughs> sure you know but lilith was her own girl lilith was her own bitch she wasn't having any of it so according to kipling lilith you know Leilun is in the tradition of lilith lilith was her very great grandmama and that was before the days of eve as everyone knows in the west People say rude things about Leilun's profession. 
prostitution and write lectures about it and distribute the lectures to young persons in order that morality may be preserved. He uh, capitalizes morality here. In the East, where the profession is hereditary, descending from mother to daughter, nobody writes lectures or takes any notice. And that is a distinct proof of the inability of the East to manage its own affairs. Now, Kipling was a pretty intelligent motherfucker. Somewhat maligned recently because, uh, you know, he was a supporter of British imperialism and it's, uh, it's not fashionable right now to, well, let's say it's, it is fashionable right now to cancel anyone in history, alive or dead, who had anything good to say about colonialism. But what's interesting in this passage is he's pretty critical of his own civilization, of his own, you know, empire and their attitudes toward pros- towards prostitution. Now, you could read this passage, you know, if you're autistic, like I think most of the uh, the uber, uber woke kids are, uh, you can read this passage without a sense of irony and just take it at face value. But if you're familiar with subtext, with the concept of subtext, this particular passage is, he's kind of saying the British way of doing things or the Western way of doing things is bullshit. It's kind of sanctimonious and high and mighty to look down on prostitutes. This particular short story was written during the Victorian era, which seems to be the genesis of our modern Anglo-American concept of prostitution as something like dirty and sinful. Because in the classical era, you know, Greek Roman days, prostitution was, I mean, a lot of it was religious rituals. In the medieval era, prostitutes in Europe were mostly they worked out of bathhouses. Like you went once a week, you go into town to the bathhouse, you get a scrub and you get a tug and it was all good. But Victorian London is where we get our modern image of fallen women and drug addicts walking the streets and spreading disease. You know, it's kind of has a lot to do with the uh, industrial revolution and everybody moving from the countryside into the cities and overpopulation and petty crime, organized crime, homelessness, the dark underbelly of modern civilization. And here in this passage, Kipling seems pretty critical of his own society's response to it treating the occupations of the the least privileged in society as evidence of their moral shortcomings. But anyway, this episode is not about Kipling. But maybe a future episode will be. I'm going to run out of stories soon, and he is one of my favorite writers, and I barely know anything about him. So that might be a fun little project. And like I said, Kipling was smart, so I'm pretty sure his phrase about prostitution being the most ancient profession is hyperbole. Because clearly, the oldest profession has to be either hunter or gatherer. Probably gatherer. I'd say gatherer was the first academic profession. And hunter was maybe the first skilled labor profession. But prostitution... Like, were there cave girl prostitutes? 
I doubt it. A hunter-gatherer tribe doesn't have enough population for a, a purely specialized courtesan class. If I'm the chief of a hunter-gatherer tribe and some Cro-Magnon tart comes up to me and says, Hey, chief, I don't feel like hunting or gathering anymore. What say I let you fuck me and you give me a bunch of meat and berries and beads and shit? I might be tempted, but as chief, I have to think of the welfare of the whole tribe and I don't have the bodies to spare for something like that. Like if this bitch isn't going to help us start a brush fire and chase a mammoth off, chase some mammoth off a cliff, then she's got to watch the kids and make sure like hyenas don't come into camp and eat them. Maybe what I'll do is I'll marry her off to Magnus, who so far shows no interest in getting his first wife pregnant. But he, but Magnus, he makes the best voluptuous BBW fertility goddess figurines you've ever seen. Like his fucking earth mother statues are the best. And then I'll impregnate both of Magnus's wives. And then Magnus can explore his sexuality with Ragnar, the spear maker. And then also I can impregnate Ragnar's wife who is hot as fuck. I can't just have women not working and not being pregnant. Like, we're living next to a glacier for fuck's sake. We're on the razor's edge here. We got to maintain a population. So this girl who wants to be the first prostitute, like, really she's a nanny who I fuck. That's the best I can do. We don't have enough population for for a geisha. You're just going to maybe fuck me and also play music. <laughs> we got to work. And I need a nanny. Like I need a nanny more than I need a prostitute. I need a nanny for the kids I got and all the kids I'm going to have soon. Cuz my wife, like she's busy doing first lady shit. Which mostly means like she's fucking all the important men in the tribe so they support my policies. Like she's my right hand. She doesn't have time to watch the kids. And my mother, I mean, my mom's the shaman, so she can't do it. Mom's off in the ice cave drinking mushroom tea and huffing volcanic gases, asking the Earth Mother why she invented the patriarchy. She doesn't have time to watch my kids. And Dad, I mean, I had to kill Dad. That's how I became chief. That's how the patriarchy works. You got to kill your father. You want to take over? Got to kill your father. So you see, there's no room for someone to just do one thing. We've all got to do multiple things. For prostitution to be a profession, like that's how you make your living, and that's all you do, you need agriculture and the inherent class division that comes with it. You need farmers. And then you need all the lazy motherfuckers that steal from the farmers, like priests, politicians, artists, improv comedy performers. And these thieves, these laziest thieves, who are creating all sorts of jobs for themselves just so they don't have to fucking hoe 
and till and harvest, these lazy thieves need to feel important, you know. They need to feel useful. They need validation. And how are they going to get it? They don't work for a living. How do you get validation without getting your hands dirty? Without working? You get people to fuck you. That's how you get it. Even if it's only for money. They can get that much-needed validation. So prostitution is one of the oldest professions. But it can't be the oldest. Maybe fifth or sixth oldest. I'd say it'd be like gatherer, hunter, fisher, tool maker. You need tools for all that stuff. Hut builder. You know, need a place to live. Then maybe farmer. Then baker. Need somebody to bake the bread that you grew. Then you need a priest. Need a politician. Then you need soldiers to protect your shit and to take your neighbor's shit. And then prostitutes. Because you got all these single dudes running around. And if you don't want them to constantly rape your daughters, then you're going to have to provide some some prostitutes. Then when the first prostitutes aged out of their profession, they became the first basket weavers and the first improv comedy performers. Improv comedians are all old whores. Also any performer, actor, stand-up, mime, juggler, just old whores. So I met no ladies of the night in Jordan. At least none that I knew of. No Ilianas, definitely no Svetlanas. On the flight back from Jordan, however, we stopped to refuel in Frankfurt. And the plane mysteriously broke down. And they couldn't get another part in until the next day. And when you're sent on a deployment, getting your team and all your shit out of the country is pretty seamless. I mean, getting getting your shit out of the U.S. to the other country, like, that all seems to happen pretty flawlessly. Like, you get your orders, you pack your shit, you put it on a pallet, get it all on the plane, and pretty much always your wheel's up right on time. But coming back is always a shit show as far as, like, getting space on a plane to bring you back home. It's like nobody nobody gives a shit about you anymore. It's like your mission's over. They don't need you to be back in the States, so there's no rush <laughs> to get you back. So sometimes it'd be days or once it took like two weeks just to find a ride back to the States. It's like you had the plane to bring me here. What? Where's the plane to bring me back? They never really care much about bringing you back. So you're just stuck in the sand somewhere, kind of in limbo. And you're all just like playing hearts and spades and hoping you can find a place to buy Copenhagen and cigarettes before you run out. Now, if you're unlucky, you'll end up getting a ride with another unit, usually like a big regular army unit. And then you're stuck riding bitch in the middle of a 727 or 737 for like a 24-hour plane ride. 
It's the worst. I had to do that two or three times, and it is the fucking worst. Usually, though, we were luckier. Or it's probably that our commanders were better at making deals, and we'd fly back on a big C-5 cargo plane, which sounds like it'd be a shitty option, like flying halfway across the world in a cargo plane, but it's actually a pretty cush way to travel. Most of the plane is rigged for cargo, but there's a small passenger cabin with kind of these old school like plush seats from the 70s that are pretty pretty roomy got a lot of leg room there's not really amenities and there's no soundproofing so you have to wear earplugs the whole time and there's no movies nothing like that but you get a couple sandwiches you bring a book or two and it's just nice it kind of feels like you're uh you're riding a train more than a plane. It's one of the few transportation experiences where you feel like you're just taking a ride and not like you're livestock on the way to slaughter. Or maybe that maybe that's what business class is like. <laughs> I've never not flown coach, so I don't know. I did fly Economy Plus once. That was pretty nice. But the C5, I'd say, was nicer, especially if you sneak some booze on. And the pilots always break down somewhere cool along the way. So this trip, on the way back, the pilots decided to break down in, Fr- in Frankfurt. Now, Frankfurt is not the coolest city in Germany. Um, if I go back to Germany, I don't know that I'd go to Frankfurt. Berlin is way cooler. Munich is better. Lots of places are cooler than Frankfurt, but Frankfurt's still pretty cool. Most of Germany is awesome. I'm sure there's got to be some parts of Germany that suck, but I don't know where they are. I can't think of the German equivalent of Dayton or Flint or... Allentown or Barstow. One of the absurd things about America is we have some of the most amazing landscapes from like a New England seaside to the Chesapeake Bay, Appalachia. Have you been to West Virginia? People make fun of West Virginia. West Virginia is fucking beautiful. We've got cool marshes and wetlands and the Great Plains and big sky country. I've never been to Montana or Wyoming, but it looks awesome. We've got Rocky Mountains stretched for thousands of miles. I have been to the Southwest a lot. It's beautiful. Like Arizona, the desert in Arizona, it's beautiful. West Texas is kind of gross. <laughs> I'll say that. Not everywhere in America looks awesome. West Texas is just flat and gross. But the rest of the Southwest, New Mexico is beautiful, Colorado, uh, Pacific Northwest. I've never been there, but I'd love to go there. Like just these crazy temperate rainforests, like huge forests. Alaska looks cool. Hawaii looks cool. Puerto Rico is great. We got all these great landscapes, and then we go and build haphazard, ramshackle, disgusting towns and cities. 
we're basically shitting on a Renoir. There's a few exceptions. We do have some nice, you know, good-looking cities in America. Maybe five. But the rest are just like, just crop up with no plan. I think it it might come from a frontier mentality. Where we have this idea that wherever we are is temporary. As Americans, we have this idea that wherever we are is temporary. It's a, it's a pit stop on the way to bigger and better things. So we're not going to invest too much in where we're at right now. Like if I'm a smart kid from Allentown, Pennsylvania, I'm going to go to school out of state if I can. If I'm not going to University of Pennsylvania, I'm going to try to go out of state. And when I graduate, I'm not coming back to put my education to work improving my hometown of Allentown. I'm going to New York or Seattle or San Francisco or I might even go to D.C. to be on Ivanka Trump's 2024 presidential campaign. That might be one of the downsides of the EU the last 20 years. Like, who the fuck, if you're from Slovenia and you can go to Berlin or Paris or London, why would you stay in Slovenia? I don't know. Slovenia is probably amazing. I've never been there. Uh, But anyway, Frankfurt is not the cultural or historical juggernaut that Berlin is, but it's still pretty cool. And I was born there back in uh, 76. I was born there while my mother was in the army, saving all of you from the commies. So when I die... Sometime around the year, probably 2175, Frankfurt will basically be like Jerusalem. So you should go soon before it's overrun by evangelicals from the cult of unapproachable. Just a bunch of fucking annoying 22nd century hipsters. Where was I at? I don't remember. I got on a tangent about me being Jesus. All right, so plane breaks down. And when the plane breaks down, they give us rooms to stay in on the base. It's it's kind of like an extended stay hotel run by the military. Um, I had to stay in a couple of these as a kid when my parents, you know, got sent around. And uh, we were, like, waiting for permanent housing. Uh, this time I was just there for a night. A couple other times I'd been there, like, as long as a week. But you're in Europe, so no one complains. Not one, not once did I ever hear a motherfucker say, hey, sir, when are they going to fix the plane so I can get back to the States and see my kids? Not fucking once. My first trip to the Middle East was to KSA, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And this time the plane broke down in Sicily. And this was my first deployment. So I thought the plane actually broke down. And Sicily is fucking beautiful. And the women are fucking beautiful. And I didn't see any obvious mafia shenanigans going on, but uh, there were a couple of channels on Italian late night TV, and they just show infomercials for phone sex chat. 
I don't. They may not still be around. This was pre iPhone. This was pre cell phone actually. Um, so they had like two or three of these channels, and they weren't. There were no shows. It was just infomercials for sex chat lines, and it was just like a a repeating reel of gorgeous topless Italian girls pretending to make out with each other under a waterfall all night long. It's just on a loop, this place. Uh, or at least it plays until three in the morning when I finally tur- managed to turn it off and go to bed. <laughs> uh, back before YouTube hole was a thing, this uh, sex chat infomercial hole was definitely a thing. It's like you want to turn it off and go to bed, but you can't. It's hot Italian girls pretending to make out under a waterfall. Um, all right, so, but I'm in Frankfurt now. And on, uh, I didn't watch any TV uh, on this particular, the plane is broken vacation. Some of the guys I was with, they were still very disappointed that the whores were on holiday in Jordan. And they were determined to make up for it before they got home to their wives. And it was totally the merry guys who were pushing the whorehouse itinerary not all the married guys but you know some of them just went off to have beer and schnitzel but the guys who were really champing at the bit they were all married mostly the chief the chief was the chief he was our chief that was his rank and uh he was our boss he was an interesting character it's kind of a short guy kind of stocky I have no idea how old he, he would have been. Maybe early 40s, late 30s, early 40s. Seemed older, but I was like early 20s. So, I mean, yeah. I, I have no idea. I'm guessing early 40s at the most. Probably not even that old. Might have been 38, 39. Um, but he was, a, he was a fucking wild man. And shady. He's shady as fuck. Uh, at this point, he was on the downside of his fifth marriage. He had three or four kids from three or four different wives, and he loved to gamble. I don't know if he had a gambling problem, but this was early days of the internet, and he was constantly online sports gambling and day trading. He probably had a lot. He probably owed a lot in child support. Um, and now that I'm thinking about it. On this trip, we had been playing a lot of hearts for a penny a point. And by the end of the trip, I was up like 50 bucks and he was supposed to pay me and the motherfucker never did. But that's what happens with fuckers who gamble. (laughs) They get you to gamble with them and then you win and then they never pay you. Uh, And I had already gotten in a few misadventures with the chief which I was usually up for because a lot of times you're bored and there was a chance they would lead to a good story. Um, And he had enough rank and enough, uh, you know, enough zero fucks attitude that um, we could just go do shit that normally a lot of times in the military, you can't go. The rules for us were different. But there were still some things we weren't technically supposed to do. But between most of us speaking the language and then the chief and our our jobs were kind of 
we were kind of autonomous too. So we could just go do shit and not tell anybody. And like, there was nobody really, a lot of times people forgot we existed. Yeah. It would, I don't know. It's tough to explain. That might be a different podcast. Um, but we generally had more freedom than most people, most American military members were in a foreign country. Um, and especially with the chief, cause he didn't give a fuck. Um, but there was also a bit of anxiety around the chief because like he was supposed to know better also. <laughs> so it was cool cause he didn't give a fuck, but he was kind of supposed to give a fuck and he didn't. So sometimes you might be a little nervous. Like, is the chief going to get us in jail? You know, he was the boss. He was supposed to be the responsible one. And sometimes I I would have to rein him in a little bit. Definitely sometimes I had to turn a blind eye and make sure that I wouldn't be implicated in any of his schemes. You know, he was definitely a schemer. Uh, but his, his particular genius was operating in the gray area of loopholes and exploiting whatever institutional gaps existed and creatively interpreting the letter of the law to achieve whatever his goal was. Um, definitely a master of begging forgiveness in lieu of asking for permission. Uh, and his goal was usually, you know, advancing his career, making money, and also getting us cool and interesting missions. So I don't really want to get more specific because I don't want to possibly get him in trouble because he was fun and I liked him. <laughs> Sometimes I was a little nervous when I go to jail, but uh, he would have made a great shady politician and I would totally fucking vote for him. Not because of his moral fiber, but because he'd get shit done and uh, you know, he took care of us for the most part. It's definitely better than having a commander who doesn't take care of you. Actually, I don't even remember if it was the chief who sort of spearheaded the trip to the brothel, to the red light districts. Uh, it was mostly just kind of in the air. We were going, I don't remember who said we were going, we were just all going. Uh, Probably because of the failed attempts at the one in Brothel or at the one in Jordan. Uh, but the chief and a couple of the other married guys were definitely leading the charge. And the rest of us were just casual little ducklings, just following them around. Um, there were probably like a dozen of us. So we split up into separate cabs and we headed down to the red light district. And there are actual red lights there. And it's uh, downtown Frankfurt. Um, I don't know how to describe this. They're huge. They're like these big, they look like projects, really. Um, I don't know if you take a train into New York, like the Amtrak or something, you'll go through um, Harlem on your way to Grand Central. And yeah, they're just like big, you know imposing, you know, brutalism constructs. Um, yeah, you know, 
at least then that was the architecture. It's just kind of these big tenement looking like project buildings. Um, and then on street level, you know, there's lots of restaurants and shit like that. There's Chinese places, Turkish places, uh, you know, bars around there. And then, uh, yeah, it's not the nicest area. It's not the worst though. <laughs> kind of in between. Um, cause in Germany prostitution is legal. I guess they legal, it's legal and then they tax it. And then, uh, the prostitutes themselves are, uh, you know, they have to get, you know, tested and go to the doctor regularly, shit like that. Um, so it's not like a slum. And then there's a couple, I guess, I don't even know how the business worked. It was kind of confusing. You just, you walk into the building and it's, they'll have like these little neon red hearts and then they'll have the red light bulbs and then they'll have a uh, sex house was one like sex H A U S was like, you know, house's house, sex house all over the place in neon. Um, yeah, it's kind of cheap looking kind of kind of risky looking <laughs> it's like uh, and I, I don't really I don't quite get the the point of the neon it's like yeah we're gonna come on in it's it's great but it, it's kind of a little shady looking too it's weird and then their attempts to I guess make it cutesy make it seem even scarier or more dangerous. I don't know. This is uh 10, 11 at night. So it's not too rowdy out on the streets. Um, and then I guess we split off. This is my memory. It's a little hazy. It's not like we all go as a group and then somehow it's we're solo. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> Everyone is off for his own particular experience. Like we're not, we're just a bunch of straight dudes. So we're not buddying up in teams to go talk to hookers. It's like, all right, dude, on your own. <laughs> and we just kind of peel off. So I go in one of these, you know, these big buildings. Um, And it's kind of, kind of crazy inside. It's, it's like a maybe like a big dorm room. It seems bigger on the out on the inside than on the outside. On the outside, it's just like a big rectangle, you know, maybe 10 stories. Um, and then inside it's like a bunch of tiny studio apartments almost. Um, just uh, like the rooms are just a room with like an attached bathroom and but in like a in a regular building you'd expect there to be like even floors <laughs> like like the first floor the second floor the third floor like they all follow the same plan and this building did not have that it was very it was very much a something wicked this way comes on the inside like you go in and there's there's stairs going up 
like to the next floor and there's prostitutes on all the floors. Like there's a thousand or 2000 girls in here in this building <laughs> and they all each has their own little room. Um, and I, I wandered around, I don't know. It seemed like I was wandering around for three hours. I was probably wandered around for 20 minutes. Maybe a little, maybe it might've been more like 45 minutes just walking around trying, trying to, like I got lost. <laughs> I don't know what the hell was going on. This was bizarro world. Um, and there's neon on the end. So inside it's a lot of black light. You got to, the key to, I think, to a successful brothel is keep visibility low. <laughs> like don't, don't let anybody look at the dirt in the corner or yeah, it's like, it's real dark. It's dim. There's kind of this harsh neon light and also like a lot of black light going on. Um, and then there's just rows of rooms, kind of like it, kind of like the way a college dorm is set up. Uh, and then there's open doors and closed doors. There's open doors. So there'd be one of the girls would be usually sitting on a stool right outside her door probably smoking a cigarette and then talking to one of her neighbors and they're just I they're just open for business. And then other doors are closed and you assume they're busy. Or maybe they're not working that night. Who knows? Um I never really I didn't get how the whole operation worked, like if they pay rent on the rooms or what or yeah, I don't know how that works. Um but Wandering around was crazy. Like it, it, the hallways winded, but it, the the building didn't wind. That was where I was confused. The building is just a, a rectangle, but the you're walking down the hallways and and they'll go left, they'll go right, they'll go diagonal, and then also as you make your way around, you'll stumble across like the Asian section because they were all separated by race as well, which was very amusing. So there were like the German girls or the, I guess the white girls, I don't know, maybe somewhere from, who knows, they could have been French or anywhere else in Europe. And then there was like an Asian section, um, which was just a couple floors full of Asian prostitutes. And then there were the African girls or the black girls. They had their own section and then there was a Latina section, <laughs> like definitely separated by race. And I learned later on the, um, the price structures were different. So like the Asians charged less. I don't know about the other, just a couple of guys got Asian girls, which I thought was weird. Some guys just have Asian fetishes. I don't know. I'm like, I'm in Germany. Why would I want an Asian prostitute in Germany? Like, if I want an Asian prostitute, I'll go to Asia. <laughs> uh, I opted for the German one, not because I'm racist, but because I figured one in Rome. Um, but it was tough to pick one because I'm intimidated. I'd never really done this before, but this time I'm like, you know what? I'm going to do it. I've been to a couple of brothels before. This time I just want to go through the experience. I just want to, you know, yeah, why not? But it's intimidating. Um, I'm also, I'm not big into blondes usually. And most of these German women were blondes. They're like these Teutonic goddesses. Um, 
And then I found uh, a brunette one. Uh, and I don't know. I just kind of like, I saw her. I kind of liked her right away. So I was probably walking around for 30, 45 minutes. Like, I don't, you know, just trying to like get up the courage. Just like say, hi, how much? And then I saw one and I'm like, you know what? I like her. Let's get her before some other dude comes in. Um, and her name was Sabina. She was brunette, fit, uh, leggings, sports bra. She starts talking to me in German right away. And I'm like, nope, English. I'm like, I grew up here, but I forgot all my German. Um, and I'm like, hey, I've never done this before, so tell me how it works. And she was super cool. She's just like, oh, okay, yeah. She breaks it down, the the price structure. Um, each service has a price. Had a very familiar retail vibe to it. Like one price for a handy, one for a blowjob, or a mouthy. Can we start calling blowjobs mouthies? Uh, it can work for cunnilingus as well. You know, handy, mouthy. Uh, and then another price for like fucking, and then she's like, kind of, I guess she kind of gave me the, she gave me the, the impression that like I could ask, request something and she would say yes or no. And also put a price to it. Like anything not standard, I guess. Um, and then there were prices for like a mix of different things. Like every sex act has a price which is probably open for negotiation, but I'm not a cheap fuck, so I didn't try to haggle. I think that's why some of these guys went for the Asian prostitutes because they were cheaper. And I'm like, but I quickly found out, like, this was cheap as fuck. Like, I I opted for, uh, let's call it the beginner package. It's like a little massage followed by a handy and then a mouthy and then sex, which cost me about $40 for all that. $40. I know, right? I was expecting a couple hundred. And this was before the euro, and uh, I think the dollar was doing pretty well against the Deutschmark, but still, it was probably about 100 marks, but with the exchange rate, is about $40, $45. So cheap that I was turned off. So I was thinking, I can afford a way better class of hooker. Where are they? Where do they operate out of? But at this point, it wasn't about the sex. It was about it was about jumping out of the fucking plane. It was about going through the transaction. It was about overcoming the fear and anxiety of approaching one of these women and asking to pay for sex <laughs> which was something i'd never done before i'd say it was scarier than jumping out of a plane because at this point you know i was uh, on jump status i'd been on active jump status for probably two years uh meaning that at least a couple times a month i would jump out of a plane with a static line and somewhere around this time i'd also gotten the a license for skydiving um basically i took a skydiving course for actually like freefall civilian recreational freefall um 
And then after I got that license and finished that course, I never went skydiving again because I didn't really like it. <laughs> I didn't love it. Um, but whether it's static line or free fall, it's still jumping out of a plane. Like the experiences are different once you're out of the plane, but the fear level beforehand is about the same. And if you haven't jumped out of a plane, it seems like it takes some courage or stupidity or recklessness to go through with it. But that is not true. It takes some amount of all of those things to get you in the plane knowing that the expectation is to jump out of it. But once you're in the plane and the door is open, everything in your being is telling you you've made a poor life decision. Like, I thought I wanted to jump out of planes, that I wanted to be that guy who jumps out of planes. And my first jump, I wasn't even really scared. I was like kind of excited. It was like, here we go. I'm finally doing this thing I've always wanted to do. I'm going to be the guy who jumps out of planes. The second jump, that was scary. Like my sense of mortality kicked in. Not on the first jump, on the second jump. And I was like, you already did this. There is no reason to do this again. You're already the guy who jumped out of a plane. What's the point of doing it again? And every jump after my first jump, and I had around maybe 80 jumps, maybe 70 something, um, like both military and civilian. What really got me to jump out of the plane was shame, not courage, Shame. I can't think of many things in the military that could be worse socially than being a jump refusal, meaning that you're on a jump with your unit, you're all in the plane about to jump together, but you say, fuck this shit and sit back down. Like the amount of tribal shaming you would incur is at least an order of magnitude worse than jumping, your chute failing, your reserve failing and burning into the ground than dying. Like there are worse things than death. And one of them is the shame of your peers when you're all jumping out of a plane together. Courage may get you in the plane, but shame gets you out. So walking around this hedgerow, hedgerow maze of a brothel, I had the same anxiety of jumping out of a plane, but there was no sense of shame forcing me to have sex with one of the women because I was alone. None of my peers cared if I fucked a hooker or not. If I had met up with everyone later and told them I couldn't bring myself to do it, I wasn't going to be called a pussy. Or if I was, I wouldn't have cared, like in this particular instance. Like... The risk of public shame that chased me out of the airplane, it didn't apply here. So don't, don't think of jumping out of planes of that anecdote as evidence that like I was a lemming or we're all lemmings or the military is all about groupthink all the time. For a few specific things, definitely it is. You need groupthink for a group to be effective. Like everyone needs to jump out of the plane and get in the fight 
if we're going to win. But in most aspects, aspects of life, I didn't give a shit what my peers thought. And most of my peers didn't give a shit what I thought. So whether or not I overcame my fear of approaching a prostitute was a wholly personal struggle. And I was only accountable to myself. And overcoming that fear became overcoming that fear became the entire reason for doing it, for approaching and having a transactional relationship with a prostitute. Which is absurd to have an entire hero's journey narrative wrapped up in having a sex with a prostitute. It is irrational. The fear was irrational. Why would I be nervous about having sex with a prostitute? I don't know why. It's not like approaching a girl at a bar. That's scary because there's a possibility of rejection. The whole point of transactional sex with a prostitute is that as long as you have the proper medium of exchange, the prostitute doesn't reject you. So why would it be scary? I'm not asking you, I'm asking me. (laughs) It's 20 years, I still don't know why. I wasn't really scared of disease, like... The women on display were kind of intimidating, you know, because they're all lounging around looking cool, smoking cigarettes, looking like they'd seen some real shit. And I'd been subjected to all the negative cultural stuff about prostitution in TV and movies and books and the news, at least in America. Uh, I think I was scared because I knew like this was a real life moment that whatever I decided to do, Afterwards, I would be the person who either did or didn't do the thing. Like up until then, I was the person who hadn't done the thing yet. And now I had to decide who I wanted to be. Kind of like Hamlet, you know, except no one dies. So once I'm in the room with Sabina, um, I see it, it is like a dorm room, like single room maybe 10 by 12. And then there's this little bathroom onto the side and everything is covered in plastic. This is why I was not worried about (laughs) getting a disease. (laughs) Everything's covered in plastic, the bed, the chair, there's sanitizer and spray bottles everywhere. It's like a, it's like a sexy doctor's office, which for me makes it not sexy because I do not have a particular medical fetish. For 2020, I would consider this room perfectly COVID safe, even without a mask. And uh, there's lube, condoms, little boxes of latex gloves everywhere, uh, and a television with European MTV playing. And pretty quickly, she mentions that she hopes I don't mind if the MTV is on because she never stops watching it, and she did not stop watching it. Um... I guess it's kind of like anyone working in an office now might listen to music or a podcast, you know, to distract them from their bullshit job. I think MTV was her podcast to distract her from her bullshit job. So she tells me all the prices for things and I'm like, all right, well, I don't need to get too crazy on the first time. Let's just uh, start with a massage, you know, because I thought that'd be an easy way to start. Um... And then the whole vibe was like, I was getting like a 
a medical exam and also a tattoo. <laughs> like I was hoping I would be happy with the results or at least not regret the results for the rest of my life. But nothing about it was really sexy. Uh, it might have been one of the first experiences that it confirmed my realization that I'm not like a fuck guy. You know, like I love fucking. And I'm in my 40s. I still think about fucking most of the day. But it's more of a psychological experience for me. And then more and more as I get older and the purely biological aspect of it isn't that interesting or engaging without the psychological part also. Um, and she does what every stripper always does. So that calms that, I don't know. I wasn't like bouncing off the walls, but it calmed me down a little bit or got me a little less anxious is she does the body worship thing. Which is what strippers do to you if you ever go to a strip club. Like, they're going to compliment something about your body right away. <laughs> That's just a trick they do. Uh, I don't know. To get you, like, you know, they'll say, like, oh, I like your arms. Uh, your legs are, oh, you got muscles, whatever. Like, strippers do that a lot. She did that, too. Um, and they just do that so, uh, you know, it relaxes you. And then it makes you nicer and they tip you more <laughs> or you, or you tip them more. Uh, and even when you know that that's what they're doing, it's still effective. You know, it's great. I know they're bullshitting me and I'm happy enough to go along with it. So I get a fake massage, meaning that she's just kind of rubbing my back and chatting away while she's watching MTV. Um, and we're positioned on the bed so that she can watch it while she's rubbing me. So it's kind of like my head is toward the foot of the bed and I'm laying on plastic too, like the bed's covered in plastic. <laughs> so it's not, I'm like, I guess I'm naked at this point. And then she's like putting some, rubbing me with some oil and then she's got all her clothes on. I don't think she actually ever took any clothes off. <laughs> That's another thing too. If you want them to take clothes off, it's a negotiation and they're gonna ask you for more money which also makes it less sexy. It's everything is like everything is on the table for them to get more money out of you. So I think that's why the initial price is so cheap because um, that's what they'll do to you. If you go to like a gold's gym, the membership is like 20 bucks, but they're going to upsell you fucking everything. That's how this play. That's how this worked. Uh, the getting in the door is cheap and then everything else is, you know, more and more. If you want her to take her top off and show her tits, she's going to ask for more money for that stuff. I didn't bother with any of that because negotiation is not sexy to me. And <laughs> I'm just like, I just kind of want to get through it. Um, so then she rubs me down for a little bit and then we move on to the next phase, uh, the handy and for this, she puts on latex gloves. So she says, prior to this, she says, everything she does is a condom except for the handy, but she's wearing latex gloves for the handy, which kind of reassures me because I want to make sure that, you know, there's plastic between me and her, <laughs> between my parts and her parts. Um, so she puts on a latex glove, which is also not a fetish of mine. And like, I am... Up to this point, I'm not hard. Like, nothing about it is sexy. I'm not really excited. 
to to get down um so i'm not hard uh nothing about the experience is really turning me on i'm just kind of calmed down at this point and like relaxed um and then uh she sees my soft penis and says it must be cold in here you know like oh <laughs> and i agree i say it is kind of cold in here not because i'm embarrassed but because like I didn't want her to take it personally that I wasn't turned on, you know. <laughs> I didn't want her to feel like she was doing a bad job, even though she was. <laughs> but then, like, once her hand in the glove is on my cock, instantly hard. Like, because, I don't know, if you've never had a penis, uh, or if you've ever had one, you know that it doesn't always give a shit whether you think you're turned on or not. Like, it has its own agenda, Either way, sometimes you really want it to be turned on and it goes, nah, not into it. And other times you're like, really? You like that? <laughs> but she's her mom. Like, they shouldn't be doing that. But your penis is like, yeah, I know. And it's awesome. Um, so I'm hard instantly. She gives a couple tugs and then I'm done. I'm, I finish. <laughs> I mean, I'd been around dudes, nothing but dudes for six weeks. So even though my brain was uh, not into the experience, my penis felt otherwise. It was all about it. Um, And then that was it. I thanked her and I left. We didn't get to the other stuff I supposedly paid for. We didn't get to the mouthy or the actual sex. Just a lame 30-second maybe a minute I'll be generous and give myself a minute uh hand job where she's you know fully clothed in her little like leggings and uh sports bra I don't know what do you want from me a spectacular happy ending to the story <laughs> I fuck her so long and so hard and so good that she quits hooking and follows me back to America no no, that's not how it ended. I I got what I came for, I guess, which is mostly just the experience. <laughs> uh, I wanted the experience of paying for sex. Uh, and I settled for a completely safe sex act instead. So afterwards, I thank her. I leave. And then uh, I go down to the, the little bar that we'd all agreed to meet at, the little pub. Um, and then two of the guys are in there already. Uh, just drink a beer. So I order a beer, hang out. Um, and one of them, uh, one of the guys was single. One of the guys was married. And the guy who was married, I was like, oh, I didn't. Was like, oh, I thought it was back fest. What are you doing back? Because he was really all about. He was one of the guys who was all about like getting the hookers, the married guy. And he was a young. I think he was a little young. He might have might have been older than me. We're about the same age. He was like twenty four, twenty five. And he's like, yeah, I really wanted to do it, but like, I don't know. I just didn't like the vibe. And I was like, yeah, I, I know what you're talking about. Didn't like the vibe. Um, he's like, yeah, I don't know. It was plastic all over everything, and like. They just talking about money the whole time. He's like, I really like, 
it's kind of a turnoff. I really wasn't into it. And I said, well, I don't want to cheat on my wife for, for this. Like, I thought it would be much cooler. And I understood. I'm like, yeah, you know, if you're going to cheat on your wife, at least have it be meaningful, I guess. <laughs> and then the chief comes down. Uh, and the chief comes down. He's like, ah, oh. he has a, he tells us all about his experience. He got like two Asian girls at once. And then uh, he's drinking a beer. And then he's like, oh, how do you guys do? And I was like, no, nah, I did all right. It's pretty good. And then the other guy, the other married guy related again, like, yeah, I just didn't, uh, I just wasn't really into it. Like, I don't know. I thought like, I thought it was going to be more, I don't know. And the chief finishes his beer, <laughs> looks at him and says, hey, you want to get romanced or you want to get laid? And I was like, that's the perfect, exactly. Like, I wanted to get romanced. The other dude wanted to get romanced. We, that's what we wanted. We wanted to get romanced. That is not what a brothel is for. <laughs> At least not this particular brothel. I, I've been to a couple other brothels. I never really engaged the services, but they're all kind of the same. They're like the fast casual dining of sexual experiences, you know, it's Chipotle. It's like, do you want an amazing dining experience or do you want a fucking burrito? That's what a brothel is. And I'd say like, I probably prefer to strip club more because since the stripper is not fucking you, she has to romance you. That's what you're paying for. So if you go to the brothel, you kind of expect it to be like the stripper, the stripper treatment plus sex, but it's not because the prostitute, since she's fucking you, she doesn't have to do all the work of the romance shit. She's not going to do all that work when she's just going to fuck you. She's going to fuck you as fast as she can, get you off as fast as she can and get you out the door. That's your job. The strippers is opposite. The stripper's job is to string you along with the promise of sex as long as she can get away with it and keep getting money out of you. It's a different, it's a different vibe. It's a different end game for each of them. Maybe if you get a super classy thousand, two thousand dollar a night hooker, maybe they combine both those experiences. Maybe they don't. I kind of think maybe they don't <laughs> combine both those experiences. I think they're all just getting whatever they can out of you with the least amount of work possible. Uh, so the chief says that great line, hey, you want to get romanced or you want to get laid, finishes his beer, and then he goes back to get more prostitutes. That was half of these married guys got like, they went for like three, four or five rounds. Like the rest of us were sitting on the bar for a couple hours waiting for them to finish. They'd go up. They'd go up for a round, finish, come down, have a beer, go up again, go up again. I mean, it got to the point where I'm like, I'm getting bored and I'm like, can we just leave them here? 
or maybe I'll go up and maybe I'll get two girls this time, but <laughs> I did not. Uh, eventually they fucked themselves out and then we all went back to the hotel. And that's a brothel. So I guess that's the lesson. If you're going to go to a brothel, figure out what you want to get out of it. If you want to get romanced, don't go. If you just want to get laid, maybe that's the place you need to be.